Okay, for our first message this morning, it will be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, and it's entitled, Our Reasonable Service. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today, as it always is, on this uh, nice, hot Sabbath day, uh, hot week that we've had. Uh, I'd like to start off today, as was already mentioned, the title of my message today is Our Reasonable Service. But I'd like to start off today by going to a scripture in Luke, the ninth chapter. We're going to read verses 57 through 62. In Luke, the ninth chapter, verse 57. It opens up and says, Now it happened, as they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those words, for the first time me hearing them from the voice of Steve Andrews many years ago and my baptismal counseling have been etched in my mind. Twelve years ago or somewhere around then is whenever I started thinking about getting baptized. I guess it would be longer than twelve years because I was baptized in 2004, uh, May of that year on Pentecost. And as we do as our tradition, we don't just baptize people if they walk in the door, we typically, we go through a a counseling uh, where our ministers or our elders will set us down and go through particular passages and make sure that we realize just how important of a decision of being baptized is. And I'll never forget those words. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, there are many things that I have great respect for our elders, but this is one in particular, and that is the baptismal counseling. The responsibility that they have in whenever they engage with someone in this process of baptism and letting them know just how important that decision in their life is, is a very big responsibility. A very big responsibility. And not saying anything negative about other, the way other people do them where they just kind of, you know, basically have a pool set up and they just have long lines. That's great. It's great that people want to become baptized. But it's a very important decision. And sometimes in this world and in this convenient way that sometimes Christianity has became, I think sometimes it loses some of its meaning. You know, this week I was looking at this passage and it just kind of hit me I was just really interesting in these words and I was just kind of maybe looking at some of the background information on this passage in particular where it says Lord let me first go and bury my father and Jesus said to him let the dead bury their own dead but you go and preach the kingdom of God now Jesus is not saying obviously that you should not care about your family members that you don't have responsibility or anything like that once you become a Christian 
But what we do know from history is, is that there was a process in the first century uh, when it came of people uh, being laid to rest. Typically, they would put them in a tomb, and they would wait one year. The purpose was is that they would allow the flesh to basically to rot away. And whenever that took place, they would go back in a year, they would take their bones, they would put them in a box, they call them an ossuary, maybe you've heard that term before, and then they would place them in the wall of that tomb. And so when we look at this passage, it almost is telling us that this man said, well, I want to do that, I want those things, but I got other things I need to take care of first. And it made me think about myself. Because I remember, I was only 19 or 20 when I was baptized. I was almost 20, I was 19. But I do remember having that attitude of, you know, I'm going to get right with God someday. You know, someday I'm going to, you know, stop doing these things that I'm doing, start behaving in certain ways, start thinking in, in certain ways, and I'm going to get right with God. And it started making me just think about what we're going to talk about today, which is from Romans, the 12th chapter. And so we're going to come back to this in a few minutes and talking about just the attitude. But let's go to Romans, the 12th chapter right now. Let's look at a very popular couple passages that we've heard many times before. Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And as I mentioned, many of us have heard and read these, these words many times and have heard many messages on them. But what is interesting right here is in chapter 12, Paul starts out by saying, Therefore, brethren, I beseech you, therefore. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to fellow believers. And that word, therefore, he's connecting what he previously said with what he's getting ready to say. Paul, in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, or the epistle of Romans, presented the Roman people, the, the church at Rome, with literally the mercies of God. It would take us a long time to go through this book. If we've read it before, we understand, you understand what I mean. Very deep theological uh, things that Paul talks about. And when I mean theological, I mean the, the interpinnings, the, uh, the deep spiritual uh, uh, truths about how we've become justified, about our calling. As one author said that Paul moves in the book of Romans in chapter 12 from theology to walkology. Right here in chapter 12, he is beginning to say, based on all the things that I have told you, I want you to respond because of that. And that, in a nutshell, is the mercies of God. Paul talks about our justification. That means becoming in right standing with God. How that has been freely imputed to us by the sacrifice of Jesus. He talks about our uh, redemption, our calling. Think about the mercy of God. I mean, every one of us, no matter how or what our life has been like, we can identify the mercies of God in our life. Just the very fact that God reached out to us and called us and is offering us the gift of salvation, the gift of understanding His truth, that is mercy, especially in light 
of understanding who we were before Jesus Christ. Who we were bare in front of God. So Paul is basically hinging his argument on, based upon the mercies of God, I want you to do two things. We're going to look at those two things in just a minute. But first, let's just consider the idea of mercy. Now, every one of us, no matter what we've gone through through life, we have had the mercy of God on us. How can we define mercy? Well, in a very limited sense, mercy is basically withholding punishment when it's deserved. Withholding punishment when it's deserved. And I think all of us would agree that that is exactly what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has done. You know, the world does not understand just how serious transgressing or transgressions against God is. When we understand how serious that is, how serious this holy God that we worship, transgressing His law, His ways, His character, the result we understand is death. Permanent separation from God. And I'm not meaning permanent separation of God in eternal hellfire, but permanent, eternal cease of existence. That's a serious thing. And when we understand the transgression, how serious that is, then we can come to understand just how merciful God is to all of us. So in light of this mercy, Paul is urging us to do two things. Number one, to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Now, what is a living sacrifice? What does that mean? Sacrifice? I mean that we sacrifice everything that we have and we give it to the poor like Jesus basically told someone or that rich young ruler which we're going to talk about in a few minutes? Or is there something that Paul is getting at here? Because there's something unique about a living sacrifice. That's almost a you know, conflict. A sacrifice is not living, it's dead. You know, in the Old Testament, when we look back at the priest, we know that it was their duty, their responsibility to perform the sacrificial duties according to God's law. And there was a lot of different things that they had to basically do. They had to consecrate themselves. They had many rituals that they had to go through. Before they could minister on behalf of the people, they had to do the required instructions that God had given to them through the law. But not only was the priest required to do those things, but they were also required to do those things with the sacrifice or the animal in which they were getting ready to sacrifice. And Paul right here is attributing this idea. And, you know, he's talking to Romans who are going to be a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. But he's also going to have kind of a, uh, an assumption that they have an understanding about the Old Testament, about what we call the Hebrew Bible, about the only Bible that they had during this period of time. He's attributing to us this concept, not physical sacrifices, in a physical sense, we know that Jesus has done that for us, but in a spiritual sense, in a state where we have renounced our sins, accepted Christ, and made a decision to live a life of obedience. But as I mentioned, living sacrifices, that's kind of a conflict. It really can almost not make a lot of sense. Because sacrifices, what's involved? What is the key thing involved in a sacrifice? Death. And that's what we have been called to do, to die. Again, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. 
the death of our old man. Let's go to Galatians, the second chapter. And let's see what Paul had to say in keeping with Pauline thought. Galatians, the second chapter, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which now I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, quite literally, we as living sacrifices, we have died according to this world. We have died to our old man. We have died to the ways of this world. We have died with Christ. And only through this, which our baptism symbolizes, that watery grave, can we become slaves to God. Can we become that living sacrifice that we talked about in Romans, the first and second verse of Romans 12. Let's also go to Romans, the sixth chapter, and look at one more passage that seems to be linked to what Paul is later saying in Romans 12 that we're looking at today. Romans, the 12, sixth chapter, verse 20, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, which we've already mentioned, the seriousness of the transgression against God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we no longer live a life that is in service to our unrighteous flesh, but now are servants of righteousness and live in service to God as living sacrifices. Now let's just think about this living sacrifice idea again and contrast it with the animal sacrifice. We as human beings, we as followers of Christ, we are actively participating in that sacrifice because the animal, they participated but not voluntarily. They had no knowledge whatsoever of what was being done. They did not live again after they were sacrificed. But we, on the other hand, we know exactly, we are deliberately sacrificing ourselves and becoming a living sacrifice. We are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And this is the logical response to the grace that the Christian doctrine teaches us through the scriptures. Now... That's not the only thing that Paul tells us to do. He says to be living sacrifices, but also to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Romans 12, chapter verse 2, he says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Let's just think about that. Transform, Brethren, we have been called to be transformed. One thing that I think is easy for us to get into to thinking sometimes is that this transformation is just a one-time thing. Instead, I think that we can forget, maybe me, I think all of us can think of personal examples where we aren't working on our transformation, but that transformation is an ongoing process. We are continually to be transformed to the stature of Christ. When we're baptized, when we accept the call of God, we're not perfect. When we die physically in this life, we're not going to be perfect. Being transformed is an ongoing process that basically continues 
for an entire life, for our entire lifetime. There's a little interesting note I want to put out here on this word that is against the word transformation, that is conform. This word conform is in the passive tense in the Greek. And it could be indicating that conforming to this world is not necessarily a completely voluntary thing. Now, obviously, it's not that it's where we conform against our will, but it's almost as if conforming to this world can take place even when we don't realize it. That sometimes, maybe, we could subconsciously start conforming to this world, and I mean that because maybe we start or stop focusing so much on our transformation. Maybe we get a little lax in our life. Maybe we stop, you know, praying as much. We start, you know, uh, being spiritually lazy, so to speak. And over time, I think all of us, Christians and non-believers alike, can sometimes easily let the world creep into our, into our minds, into our lives, and we can start to be more conformist than transformist. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as past spiritual Gentiles. We no longer walk in our former ways as we talked about, as servants to unrighteousness. Let's go to Mark the 10th chapter. And I'm kind of going through this quick, and I apologize. Uh, in talking and thinking about these things that I was preparing this week, a story really kind of caught my eye when I was thinking about the world and how resistant the world is. I mean, we can think about all the different things. There are many reasons people are resistant to God, to God's Word. People are resistant to God's Word through philosophical or scientific reasons. They think that, you know, they know more. Science cures all. Science proves that there's not a God. They believe in evolution. They think we come from monkeys. They think all these different things. So there's sometimes an intellectual scientific reason why people want to claim that they don't believe in God or that they don't want to accept Christ. But there's also sometimes another reason. I think it's a little bit more often. And I think even we sometimes can get into this trouble. I think Mark the 10th chapter, verse 17 through 27, kind of brings this out. It says, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, we've all heard this story before. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept, my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And we know the story that goes on. What takes place is Jesus talks to his disciples, and he simply says that Basically, it's easier for uh, you know, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to inherit the, etern- the, the, the kingdom of God. Why is that? Is Jesus saying right here you have to sell all your possessions if you want to follow him? I don't think so. I think that the crux of this story 
is not that you have to give up your wealth for God, but rather this man, he did all these things, he kept the commandments, but the one thing that Jesus instructed him to do, sell all he had and give it to the poor, we see right here, this made him resistant. He was sorrowful for this. Why? Because this was something that he held on to. And it demonstrated that he essentially favored that over following Jesus. Oh, I can keep the commandments. I can you know, not commit adultery. I cannot steal. I cannot lie. And I always tell people that. People ask me the question, why do you keep the Sabbath? I say, well, because that's an easy commandment to keep. I mean, it really is. The Sabbath's an easy commandment to keep. Murder is an easy commandment to keep. What's a difficult commandment to keep is the spiritual application of that. Not getting angry with my brother. That's the difficult one. I'll take the freebies. I'll take the easier ones. The more difficult ones, though, the ones that we, you know, harbor in our hearts, you know, those secret things that we really, if you get down and you have, you know, an, if you're bare before God, you demonstrate through your actions that maybe you favor certain things over God. And right here, Jesus is saying that, you know what? A lot of people will do a lot of things. But when it comes down to it, there are, everyone has this. And we can all identify these things in our life. Every one of us has something that's maybe hard for us to give up to follow God. That's more of a temptation. It has nothing to do with wealth. Maybe it's wealth for some people. Maybe for other people, maybe it's alcohol or drugs. Uh, maybe it's some sort of other sin where it almost can even not even be a sin in and of itself, but what makes it a sin is, is because our, you know, us being prone to favor that over favoring God or over choosing God. So unfortunately, I think this is one of the reluctant attitudes or excuses that many people have that holds them back, giving up this world to follow Christ. They are stuck on the perishable things. And the perishable things don't always have to be physical. They don't always have to be physical. I mean, I will admit, me personally, one of the things you can ask my family, you can ask my wife, you can probably even ask my kids. That's only, you know, especially my son Asher. I'm a diehard Oklahoma University football fan. I mean, I am diehard. It's embarrassing sometimes. Now, am I saying that that's a sin, it's wrong to have a team? No. But the level of seriousness that it can be elevated to, I think, could be questionable. I mean, it can definitely turn into an idol. And so sometimes I think that people, they don't want to give those things up. And it's not about giving them up, but it's about putting them in proper perspective. It's about putting them in proper perspective. Too often Christians try to make God conform to what they want God to be. To their desires, their conveniences. They want to find a version of Christianity... That is their flavor. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to look for a church because you want to feel like you're at home in a particular church. Maybe you relate to the, you know, the personalities that are in that church. I think that's true. We're all very different people. We're, we all come from different backgrounds. Some people might not be real comfortable coming here, but they might be more comfortable going down the road to another congregation. I don't think that's bad. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But when we start looking for a version of Christianity that fits our flavor, not based upon where we're comfortable, but based upon, well, they tell me the things I want to hear. And that does take place in this life. I mean, there is one particular very, very popular minister 
that has written many books and has you know, thousands upon thousands of followers. Nothing bad about him, but he never says anything uh, necessarily that could even come close to maybe offending people. And no, don't get me wrong, I'm not in the business of you know, offending people. I'm not in the business of you know, beating people over the head. I think you know, ministers should be encouraging. They're, but at the same time, there needs to be instruction. There needs to be uh, communication that, you know, there are certain things you shouldn't actively be participating in. And so, out of fear of possibly losing membership and therefore income, uh, this individual has actually even been on shows like Larry King Live and asked point blank, is this a sin? And he always diverts it. Well, I think it's just about a relationship with Jesus. And so, there are people out there that want to do everything they can to make Christianity, make faith conform to every different lifestyle there is. And I tell you what, I want to tell this individual, you know what, it'd just be easier just to, you know, be real with the word. I mean, you're trying to do so many gymnastics around making everybody happy. But you know what, if you just preach the truth of God's scriptures, it's much easier. You don't have to come up with anything. You just preach from the word. Preach from the word. So, is this something that people in the world, people do? I mean, are we, you know, immune to trying to conform God to us? Of course not. I mean, all of us have probably got examples that we can think of where we, you know, say, you know what, maybe our thinking about, maybe we have a sin, maybe we have a particular thing that we need to get over, but we maybe put it off or we justify why it's okay. Uh, one in particular example is in Exodus, the 32nd chapter. Uh, all of us have probably, you know, heard stories about this and seen this as an illustration or an example of how uh, people can conform or try to make God conform to their own desires. But this is essentially, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I don't think I need to. I think we've all been there and we all read this. But essentially, Moses is up on the mountain. He's delaying and coming back to the people of Israel down at the bottom. And the people say, you know, we don't, what's going on with Moses? We don't know what happened to him. You know, and they go to Aaron, and Aaron, you know, basically, you know, he says, he tries to basically, you know, not take responsibility like he should, but basically, they put in all their gold, and they burn it down, and they mold it into a golden calf. And what do they say? They say, look, here is the God of Israel, here is the Eternal that brought you out of Egypt. And so what they're essentially doing is, as being previous slaves in Egypt, they would have understood the gods of the world, the gods of Egypt. Uh, and they made God conform to what they thought God should look like and what God should be like. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, pointing to two golden calves. And so it's interesting, this story right here, I think, is so... Uh, something that takes place even to this very day among believers. Conforming God to our likes, to our desires, the way we believe God should be right here. I think that this is something that is very easy to do. But we know that we're called to transform, not to conform. And transformation is something that takes place over an entire lifetime. In conclusion... I want to just kind of bring out four things why I think that Christians so easily sometimes can have a temptation to conform to this world. 
this is by no means a comprehensive list. There's many things that you could probably think of, but this is just my thinking. Number one, a me attitude. An attitude focused on the self rather than on God. An attitude that looks to worship God in our own ways, the ways we think that God should be worshipped and not with an attitude that seeks out what God desires. When we become cognizant that we are living sacrifices, that we live unto God, not unto ourself, we understand that we have died to the world and we live in Christ. We are now slaves to God. We have a responsibility, and with this responsibility, it should be a, uh, you know, an obvious a desire of ourselves to worship God, not in a me attitude, but with an attitude on what pleases God himself. Number two, convenience. And I think that this is obviously related to the first one. People out of lazy and vainness want to search out the easy way of convenience. This is a part of the first reason, which is a me attitude. Convenience. I think that that is a really big issue in our world today. I love technology. I love, you know, the different things that we have been able to discover. But we have become accustomed to having things very quickly. We have become accustomed to, uh, you know, wanting things without having to put out a lot of effort. And so I think that sometimes this can even permeate into our spiritual life. Not realizing that, you know what, just in our spiritual life, just like in the world, it takes real effort. It takes real uh, work. Number three, lack of fellowship with God and the brethren. I think this is very, very important. When we start neglecting time with God through Bible study and prayer, stop feeding ourselves spiritually, we start getting weak spiritually and inevitably we'll start conforming to the world. We start connecting with the body. We stop connecting with the body. Connecting with the body of Christ is essential. We are individual members of one body. We need each other. I don't mean that we need each other for salvation, but we need each other for spiritual nourishment. Yes, we have a personal relationship with God, and that is very important. But being together, there is something that God has put in us to desire community. God is a God of family. He designed the human race, as well as every other part of creation, to fit in a family design. No matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert, you need the body of Christ. You need the community of believers. It is essential to your spiritual growth. Number four, living in sin and compromise. I think that this is a big one. Living in sin and compromise. When it starts, sin that is, if it's not killed and put to submission, it spreads. When we stop trying to be overcomers and working on our weaknesses, it consumes us and leads us to compromise. We lose our sensitivity to sin and start trying to justify it and compromise. Compromise, I think, goes back to the whole idea of being a, you know, having a me attitude and convenience. We start compromising a little here, a little there, and sooner or later we start almost not having that, you know, awakening to how serious sin and transgression is to God. How serious it is. And, and the mercy that God has been you know, bestowed upon us in order for us to be living sacrifices and to give us, through His Holy Spirit, the ability to transform. 
Brethren, these are just a short list of reasons why Christians, or us as Christians, we can start being conformers to this world. And as we close here, I'd like for us just to think upon these things. Think upon what Paul has to say. Think upon, upon the idea of being a living sacrifice. I mean, this is a crazy world. This world has become so crazy that one of the biggest phrases I hear is, what's wrong with people? What's wrong with our world? Even people that have no connection to God or to the Bible or to Christianity, they're non-believers, they themselves are even starting to realize just how nuts of a world that we live in. And so with this, what are we doing in being living sacrifices in terms of demonstrating our living sacrifice to God? You know, I used to have this idea that Christians, you know, they shouldn't, they should just stay out of, you know, everything, you know, all, you know politics, all those things. And I don't necessarily, I'm not being political in any way, shape, or form, but we have a place in this world, and we have a purpose in this world. We have to be relevant. And what I mean by relevant is we have to be visibly seen doing the things that this word says Christians are supposed to be doing. You know, there's an early, and I think it was Tertullian or something like that, a lot of the Romans looking at the Christians, they did comment on the love that they had for one another. That is the Romans. It was very perplexing to them. In fact, one of the things that made Christianity grow so much, they said that the, the blood of martyrs was the seed of Christianity. In other words, the seed of it blowing up. Now, what that means essentially is, is that people would look at Christianity. This is in the early days when it was this movement that really the Romans were wanting to snuff out. And they would look at these individuals that would, like, in the face of being thrown into a lion's den or into the Colosseum to be basically killed in some sort of, you know, entertainment for the Romans, they would see them willing to do that. And they would say, my goodness, if that person is willing to do or die for this faith, I need to look into this. And it actually drove people to look into Christianity. They thought to themselves, this must be real, a lot of people. This, they must have some sort of power. There must be some sort of influence, supernatural influence, that's giving them the ability to face such harsh evil, such you know, harsh circumstances. Do we exhibit that influence in the world today? I'm talking about the church, the body of Christ in general, not us individually. I mean, obviously us individually, but I'm not pointing anyone particular out. All of us, people outside of this building who are part of the body of Christ. So as we think about these things, think about being transformers, think about being, uh, you know, living sacrifices. Let's think about our duty to God. Let's think about how all of us, we've put our hand to the plow. We know that there's no looking back. We've counted the cost. Let's just do a little evaluation on where we are as being servants of God that are presenting our bodies and the members of our bodies as instruments of righteousness, which is based upon the mercies of God and everything that he has done for us, our reasonable service.